Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious disease podcast by Canadian infectious disease physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here again with Dr. Rapina Purewal, Pediatric Infectious Diseases Specialist from Saskatoon. In this episode, we welcome two guests, Dr. Jason Newland, Pediatric Infectious Disease Physician in St. Louis, Missouri, as well as Dr. Michelle Mitchell, Pediatric Infectious Disease Physician in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today, we discuss the importance of antimicrobial stewardship. Dr. Pierwall. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of our podcast at the Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we have two very special guests, and I will be introducing them shortly here. Our topic that we'll be talking about today is regarding antimicrobial stewardship. So as most of us are aware, um, as our audience are pharmacists, family doctors, um, nurses, uh, medical students, and residents and fellows, all of us working with patients, we know that the importance of an antimicrobial stewardship program, especially in a time where resistance is developing and we have a lot of antimicrobial resistance um, and a shortage probably of some novel antibiotics, I think this is a really, really important topic. So today we have Dr. Jason Newland and Dr. Michelle Mitchell. So thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, for having you. us. Yeah, perfect. All right. So Dr. Jason Newland is a professor of pediatrics at Washington University in St. Louis and the director of antimicrobial stewardship program at St. Louis Children's Hospital. His current research spotlights the use of antimicrobials and the impact of an antimicrobial stewardship program at Children's Hospital. He's a co-founder of the Sharing Antimicrobial Reports for Pediatric Stewardship, Sharps Collaborative, for improving antimicrobial use in children that is comprised of over 70 children's hospitals in the US. He has been the chair of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Society Committee on Antimicrobial Stewardship and served on the IDSA's Antibiotic Resistance Committee. All right, and then I'll introduce our second guest, who is Dr. Michelle Mitchell, who is an assistant professor of pediatric infectious diseases at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She received her MD and completed a pediatric residency at St. Louis University, followed by a fellowship in pediatric infectious diseases at University of Colorado Children's Hospital, Colorado. She is Associate Program Director of the Pediatric Infectious Disease Fellowship Program at the Medical College of Wisconsin and the Medical Director of the Antimicrobial Stewardship Program at Children's Wisconsin, where she co-led the implementation of Handshake Stewardship. All right, so thank you so much. And we look forward to hearing some of uh, your expertise on antimicrobial stewardship. Just for our listeners, uh, we may use terms as ASP, and that'll stand for Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. And so if there's some uh, kind of acronyms used, um, that would be probably the most likely. All right, so I wanted to do this podcast because obviously being an infectious disease physician, it was important for me as well. And there's a lot of differences between Canada and the US in terms of resources and how much um, and how advanced we actually are in terms of um, the stewardship programs. And you guys definitely are our leading neighbors. Um, so I think hearing from the experts, just to let us let our audience know a little bit about the role of an ASP physician. Yeah, I mean, this is super excited, Rapina. Thank you so much uh, for having us. I, I, um, I always love being on podcasts and uh, trying to get the word out uh, about just to have conversations. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, we've been, we've been 
blessed to collaborate with uh, people from Canada. And we, we've had, I've been able to meet different people like uh, I think Nicole in Ottawa and, and, and Sergio, who I know you train under in Manitoba and, and doing a lot of work. There's a number of folks, obviously, and we are blessed with resource um, compared, right? And we have hospitals that literally are mandated um, if they want to get paid by the government, they have to have stewardship programs in place, which requires them to put, you know, money toward people like Michelle and I. Um, and so, um, and that's been in, in, in pediatrics specifically, um, U.S. News and World Report, many people are aware of, you know, in the U.S., you know, we like to compete on everything. And, <laughs> and so if there's anything that drives um, hospitals, it's U.S. News and World Report. They all care about their ranking. And there's about 10 questions um, about stewardship in your hospital. And those questions even include what sort of funding or what amount of funding do you provide for a physician? Right. And I can tell you my job here in St. Louis at Wash U was largely driven by that need um, to have that funding. And so having that backup makes it a lot easier to spend days and to have funding to say, okay, we're going to have, we're going to be an all in approach to antimicrobial stewardship. Meaning, I mean, not that that's what I do now as much, but when I first arrived in St. Louis, only thing I had to focus on was stewardship. Um, with, you know, not as much inpatient service time so that I could focus on that. And so that day-to-day means I can round in the hospital. I can walk around and talk to all the services. I can meet with a pharmacist. I can then do guidelines and um, interact with um, informatics or the electronic health record teams to try to develop the things that you need to develop. Because as we've all learned in stewardship, this is a full-time plus job for one just physician lead. Right. Yeah. And so I guess, Michelle, in terms of, um, in like, I, in terms of the antimicrobial stewardship program, if you want to talk a little bit about what are the benefits of it? So we all obviously know that having a physician like Jason just mentioned, but having a team as well is really important in, in a stewardship program. Um, and so as a, in the role of a physician, what can you tell us a little bit about ASP is brought up and that you think has um, been beneficial? So I think everybody knows that there's, you know, ample data that tells us that, you know, antibiotics can be pretty harmful to a lot of people, you know, 20% serious adverse event rate um, for hospitalized patients receiving antibiotics, about one in three kids that are placed on antibiotic get some sort of adverse event. Um, So we know that's happening. We know that a lot of our antibiotic use is on completely unnecessary, um, that those antibiotics that are considered necessary, a lot of them are either dosed suboptimally or given for the wrong duration. So the, there's a, unfortunately a lot that we do wrong. Right. Um, so that's, you know, low hanging fruit to, you know, correct that, make it better. Um, we know that antibiotic use is the main driver of antibiotic resistance, right? So. Um, with 2.8 million antibiotic-resistant infections in the in the U.S. per year, um, 35,000 deaths. You know, and on on our current track record, that's only going to increase. So, you know, unless we do something to curb that um, that trend, uh, you know, we're we're causing harm, which is exactly what we're supposed to be avoiding as physicians. So, um, so that you know, those are the potential benefits and. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, we can also save the hospital a lot of money. Um, so there's a lot right. of data out there that suggests, you know, you can invest in stewardship, but you get much more than what you invest. I mean, let's face it as ID physicians, you know, we, we do not cost as much as a surgeon. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, we, we don't come all that expensive, but we can, we can build those relationships. We can get people to, to change. And so you get a lot of return on investment. Yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, I think the economic impact of inappropriate antibiotic use has not been, you know, further, you know, right. looked at enough. And I think just, even if you just look at the inpatient side, I mean, you know, you, you preventing a, a, a case of acute kidney injury that required, you know, an extra day or two of hospitalization because someone um, continued on vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam. I mean, there, there's enough stuff there. And, and I think we in the antimicrobial stewardship world have failed to demonstrate value at that level, because it's hard to de determine a value when something doesn't happen. Right. right? So if yeah. you don't have the negative consequence of an antibiotic, how do you value that? Um, and that's just going to require some other work. And, and let's not, I mean, the outpatient world is that in the same boat. I mean, we, right. in collaboration with a woman, uh, a, a great epidemiologist and Ann Butler, we were able to publish a paper and JAMA open just this past couple of weeks that suggested, you know, inappropriate antibiotics in the outpatient setting cost us oh, in excess of $74 million. I mean, that's a lot of money for, just from what people are like, oh, amoxicillin for that, you know, cold is probably not that big of a deal. Well, in the end, it is because the excess healthcare costs and the back to the hospital or back to the clinic because of the adverse events. I mean, it's a lot greater when you take the totality of excess antibiotics that's being prescribed. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's one of those things that you talked about, Jason, is that it's just so difficult when you're trying to like, and you're on the preventative side, right? So whereas like most of the time an ID, you know, we're coming in afterwards and, and really treating, like we're on the treatment side and that's usually when we get called. So having that kind of forefront person being part of our team and ID, you know, most people think of ID physicians as antibiotic doctors, which I usually walk in and I, you know, sometimes to parents, you say, you say that, but then I also like kind of step back and let them know, like, I will, I'm also somebody who's probably going to pull off the antibiotics faster than, than like another team member, just because I know that there are adverse events and, and we see those. And so those are, you know, and part of having stewardship and having that role, I think, and I think you brought up a really good point is that it's not just in the inpatient setting. And I think when we think about ASP, we commonly think about that because that's where the bulk of the stewardship program exists, but really having kind of that outlook that, yeah, most of the antibiotics are actually prescribed outpatient. And for those colds, for those milder, you know, ear infections that maybe would have improved in 72 hours and didn't require antibiotics. Right. So, so I think there's definitely that. Now we talked a little bit about resources and you mentioned that obviously there's a lot of funding in the U S that goes to towards this position. Now, unfortunately in Canada there, we don't have as much funding that's, you know, well established for this role. And so you know, in terms of setting up a, a stewardship program, a lot of ID physicians don't actually have more than 15 to 20% of their actual role that they can dedicate to this. And like you mentioned, it's almost a full-time position to have somebody in this role. So can we talk a little bit about 
the reason I'm really interested in this is because we are currently in our children's hospital here, you know, in the process of we've tried to set up a program. It's just been more difficult because we don't have pharmacist support. And so what is some advice that you would give to somebody, let's say a physician like myself or my colleagues here to set up a program if you're in a resource limited kind of area? I think that can be really difficult. I, I'll just say that first off. I mean, you're, you're making me think about all the resources <laughs> that I have that, that help me in my job and making yeah. me appreciate those resources for sure. But I think, you know, even before I have all these resources, I think, you know, guidelines in general are less labor intensive, right? If you're not able to do prospective audit and feedback, you might be able to at least have a, a select group of antibiotics that you can do prior authorization on, right? When right. you do have to have a person that has to be called or notified, but you could potentially set that up through your hospital pharmacist or the ID physician that's on call, you know, if they're willing to participate in that. And those phone calls don't have to be super labor intensive, but, you know, if you want to protect things like mirapenem or ceftaroline, <clears throat> you know, some of your really broad spectrum antibiotics, you know, those phone calls I don't think are going to get too onerous unless you're in a really large hospital system. Right. And again, the, the guidelines, I think just building those relationships with other groups of physicians in the hospital, um, they can do a lot of the bulk work behind the guideline. But if you're able to kind of influence the antibiotic use, the dosing, the duration, I think you can work with your hospital pharmacists on IV to PO protocols that they can help enforce. Um, standardizing dosing throughout your hospital. You know, I think those are some low hanging fruit that don't require a whole lot of resources. Other, yeah. you have other thoughts, Jason, those are the ones that well, I- Well, yeah, no, I think that's all. I mean, I guess the first thing is, and I like to, I know you mentioned this, that you don't have pharmacy support. I just, I think that if there's been anything that I would fight for is pharmacy <laughs> support. Like if someone's going to say, okay, we, what's a must? I, I think anymore, if you can get the, must to be pharmacy support. That's what I go for. Right. Um, now, I, people on the that are listening have to understand that I'm married to a ID pharmacist who does <laughs> stewardship. Um, and so, yes, I am very biased. But I, but you know, you can see <laughs> over time that you know everyone re realizes this, and that's why the CDC and their as they change their core elements said, look, you, it needs to be co-led. It needs to be co-led by a physician and a pharmacist because pharmacists have really driven the impact in a lot of our programs. So I guess that's the one thing. I think you got to do everything you can to get pharmacy support. And then I think the second thing, and Michelle mentioned all the things that you can, these things you can do. I really strongly believe in in-person interactions. And I think it's, as you're limited, mm -hmm. you know, you then you pick some spots you can go talk to people. Um, Cause then, as Michelle said, then you're trying to, you're trying to find your advocates within each of these groups. Right. So there's probably someone in neonatology that actually gets the fact that antibiotics are bad and gets the fact that, I mean, neonatologists get it better than most, right? Cause they realize that excess antibiotics leads to neck and they don't like cephalosporins. Like, I mean, these, these guys are, right. you know, they have their own, they come up with their own early sepsis score to make it easier not to do antibiotics. So, you know, there's these people that are there and I think yeah. they're there in neonatology, they're in intensive care medicine and, you know, they're, they're there in surgery. And it, can you identify them? Because then they become your, the people that kind of get the job done right. as you're moving forward. And, you know, and then with that all being said, you're always going to have the 
people that just aren't going to want to pay attention, but <laughs> kill, I always say kill them with kindness. Keep be happy yes. around them and kill them with kindness. And eventually like, why are these people so nice? <laughs> I you with, with other people, like working with other people too. And then like over time, they're like, well, that person's not very threatening and they're getting resources there. And then they maybe get a little bit jealous. Like, well, why don't you come help us out? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you build small wins with the people that, and, and, and you're there and you're, and you're there and you're present. I think that part of it's just having a presence. And, and I, and that's, if, if I was in your shoes, mm-hmm. that's probably, I'd probably pick a unit and I'd probably go there two to three times a week. And I would say, here, I'm the stewardship program. I've looked at these patients. I just wanted you to know this is what I'm thinking. Do you have any questions? Right. And even though I had nothing and I would just start with that. And I would probably make sure that I'm talking to as many people as I can, right. because I think in the end, and I, we've said this a lot. I, I think there, there's the medicine side and we, we can argue about tracheitis and the ICU people understand where they come from. They actually understand where we come from. Yeah. The surgeons with that want to do drain prophylaxis have their reasons and we disagree and we have our reasons. And it, there's not a, I mean, you can debate it all you want, but we all know each other's side, honestly. Yeah. So what it comes down to is a social game and then having all the skills to be a social scientist is necessary. How do you do conflict resolution? How do you do communication management? I mean, all these different things. That's what stewardship becomes. So, right. yeah, it's key about communication, you know? So like them being aware, knowing you, um, having, and I think that's where this, like the handshake approach, you know, comes in play um, yeah. when we talk about that model. So why don't we talk a little bit about, I know um, Michelle obviously has co-led that initiative there. And she previously told me that, and she's had some training under you, Jason, for, you know, helping establish her stewardship program there. So why don't we hear it from Michelle first to see how setting up your program there and when you co-led the handshake stewardship model, um, kind of what were some challenges and what were some things that maybe you weren't anticipating um, starting that pro- when you started that program out there? Well, so for better or for worse, we... <laughs> you know, Tracy Zumbles, who's the, you know, my pharmacist co-lead, uh, you know, we just decided, um, we picked a date and said, we're just going to start going out there and just doing this. We didn't really give anybody a whole lot of warning. Um, cause we thought, well, if, if we give them warning, then, then, you know, then they have an opportunity to push back. So we'll just kind of see what happens and you'll have to gauge your center. And if that's, if that's a worthy approach or not, but, you know, fortunately it, it worked out, but we did have to survive about a year of, you know, sort of rehashing kind of who we are, what we're doing, you know, we're not the antibiotic police. We're, we're just, you know, we're just trying to optimize care for patients. We're on the same side. Um, we got a lot of like deer and headlight looks of like, you know, what am I doing wrong? Like, what are these people doing here? And we still get a little bit of that every July, right? When, when the new residents come in and, and so then they're a little bit scared um, uh, when they see us, but, you know, we bring around candy and pass it out and, um, you know, try and do like nice things. You, you know, we, we read a room. So things look really busy and chaotic, like in the ICU workroom, we just, you know, back off. So we're really looking at the long game. We're trying to change the culture, make our, um, visibility of, uh, you know, have a positive connotation with it. So, um, so yeah, we just went out there and we, we started giving feedback and we stopped by all of the workrooms, regardless if we have an intervention or not, 
do you have any questions? You know, is there anything we can help you out with? And a lot of the times it's the questions that then they ask us that were totally not on our radar. Right. Um, that end up being some of the best uh, things that we can help with, you know, you know, it, it may turn out that the patient, you know, they had it like a suspected CNS infection. It's like, well, the drug you're on doesn't even penetrate there. Or, you know, maybe they weren't even thinking about um, a certain diagnosis or something that touches like in the ID world. And so I can recommend an ID consult and, you know, could completely change the management of a patient. Um, and I know um, other hospitals have similar examples to that, but, um, but it's really been a door opener for a lot of that like relationship building. So again, if you want to change the culture, like Jason had mentioned before, you got to start just, you know, building those relationships with different people, mm -hmm. building that trust. Um, and, and over time, you know, it, you know, as you sort of, yeah, you kill them with kindness or you wear on them, you know, nudges are good, but you don't want to get pushy. Um, yeah. you know, you don't want to burn any bridges. So we just try and stay positive. If we get a door slammed in our face, so to speak, we haven't actually had any door slammed in our faces, but, but if it, you know, figuratively, if that happens, then we just kind of back off and, um, you know, we may approach it from a more global standpoint of like looking at, you know, can we, can we get on the same page maybe with a guideline, um, or, or, you know, we just give it, give it some time and then we kind of circle back. So, you know, it's, it, I wish I had a minor or major in psychology after doing this while. Like, yeah, it sounds crazy. like it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I mean, Michelle trained at Colorado, right? So she trained right. where they where they actually developed handshake stewardship under right. Sarah Parker. Right. I mean, she's the right. one that coined it, and so I mean, I think she hit on it. I think, and Michelle mentioned it. Right? I mean, what ends up happening is you develop the relationships, and mm -hmm. I think I think for the people listening, I mean, the person to actually read stuff about or try to listen to is Julie Simzak, and the way you spell her last name is S-Z-Y-M-C-Z-A-K. I mean, her work is really fascinating in the number of quotes and stuff. And she's followed stewardship teams around and done a lot of stuff on communication. And she now has developed kind of a communication model that suggests, you know, you have to understand the context. Then you have to have your communication strategies and you have to have your collaboration. And these are the three C's of kind of the important thing. And I think that's exactly what Michelle just mentioned, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you understand the context. You mentioned that like sometimes you don't, when the ICU is in the middle of rounding on an ECMO patient, like talking about the ANSEF they're on for the twos, well, you might not agree with is probably like the last thing they want to hear about, right? right? That's the content. You have to understand that content. That's the social part of this yeah. um, versus the kids on ECMO and they don't have them on vancomycin because and they have MRSA and they have horrible pneumonia. And you're like, guys, why aren't you, you know, like, that's yeah. another side of stewardship people don't talk about. But when you have that relationship, you can have that conversation because they know you're only going to talk when or you're going to speak when it's really important in that regard. So, I mean, I think that's the part of this. That's why to me, as Michelle mentioned, like a psychology degree, a social science degree, well, all of these things, these social, the social game of stewardship, I think is the most important thing um, in what you do as you move forward in it. Right. No, that's, that's a really good point. And I think you know, bringing up, um, you know, the type, the communication, I mean, it just goes back to medicine, right? Like that is what we are trained to do. We're, you know, working in a collaboration. And, and I think sometimes, you know, and Michelle mentioned that antibiotic police, the policing, you know, role. And so I think sometimes it's taken as like, we're, you know, somebody who'd be walking in and, and having that role, but really it's more working as a team. 
Um, and, and the interest at the end of the day is the best interest for the patient, right? Because as all of us know, the ASV programs, you know, we're changing inappropriate use of antibiotics, but also modifying so that there is appropriate use of antibiotics. Um, and there's been great studies out there letting us know that there's decreased you know, morbidity and mortality um, with when you're working on all aspects of it. And so, and so that's, um, I think most of our listeners probably are aware of all of that. And so I think the next kind of thing I want to talk about is highlighting. So we talked about this handshake model. Um, maybe we can touch a little bit about, is this the same model like currently that you guys are using in ASP? Is this pretty much been a bit modified since the beginning? And I, I wonder if Jason, since you've been in this a little bit longer than the rest of us um, in ASP, um, and you're kind of, you know, on a, a lot of the committees, um, then you, if there's ongoing talk about what is the best kind of model. Well, yeah, you know, I, so you know, I trained, I'll age myself. I trained from 2003 to 2006 and trained at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where we just did prior approval, right? So we, we held, held a pager if you wanted ceftriaxone, Ampsilbactam, you know, you had to call us to get it. Now you can imagine getting a call for ceftriaxone like at seven o'clock at night, you know, like that, you're like, man, really? Um, especially now, but and that was what we did. And that was fine. I mean, I stopped a lot of ceftriaxone for community acquired pneumonia back in 2003. Yeah. And said, no, you can do ampicil and you're fine. Right. But that, that was there. So that, that was why one of your first papers was on that, right? You're so exactly right. That is exactly right. Let's switch to ampicillin, please. So, um, <laughs> And so when I first, so when I took, when I moved to Kansas city, I, my first 10 years of, of my career was in Kansas city. Um, mm -hmm. and I was like, I'm not coming to Kansas city going to make them call me. Cause I, I don't think that's going to go well. Um, and so we, so we started a pro prospective audit, but we only looked at those people who had, you know, we only went and talked to those that we had a recommendation and then Sarah came along, right. And did a handshake stewardship. And, and it, and it, and that made sense to me, right. I mean, the reality of it is, is communication and collaboration is what sustains a program. The yeah. more you can communicate, the more you can collaborate, the better you're going to be. And we kind of talked about that. And so it then has become clear that you need, I think you need to have some sort of in-person conversation, relationship building time. And that's what Handshake Stewardship allows you. I'm on the side of the fence. So that still thinks there needs to be some, I still think there needs to be some prior approval. Now, some places don't. Some people still don't do it. And probably because they have the ability that they're not going to use the Ceftaz AV Bactams or Ceftolazan Tazobactams mm -hmm. or the Daptomycin in a inappropriate use that where you only find out about it after they started it. Because I do think that there are some things, right? Like when do you ever really need to start empirically Ceftazidine you know, AV Bactam? Not very often. And mm -hmm. if you do need to start it, you probably need to have an ID consult because there's probably something really bad in a, some highly resistant that's going to take a lot more than just a stewardship conversation. Right. Yeah. So I still am thinking that prior approval needs to be a part of our programs. And that's how we have it. So we now, so when I moved to Canada, or to St. Louis in 2016, the program start here was really based off of handshake stewardship. So we do the rounding with the pharmacist. We now have trainees that join us, which is always fun because it's a, because handshake stewardship is a perfect opportunity to educate, right? Like you get to chat with people and, you can yeah. quiz, you can quiz the residents, you can have fun in that and you can 
also learn everything about them, which is also, as Michelle can tell you, I usually like to do a lot of chit-chatting about all kinds of things. <laughs> it might be the latest Netflix show or something else, but I think that builds relationship. Um, yeah. And so I think that's the way, but I think those are like your core features on a day-to-day thing. But what often gets missed is that while that might be your morning, your afternoons um, are trying to develop a guideline because it gets kind of old to go by the same surgeon over and over saying you don't need the post-op drains. Cause that's, that's kind of annoying to them and for you. So yeah. that's a different level, right? That's working on something else or, or trying to get the Ceftriax and Ampicillin switch without having to have the conversation every time. Well, that's a big guideline. Um, and so I think those are the other parts. No, that's fair. Yeah. And then I guess this touching on, um, cause we talked a little bit about guidelines and, um, you know, developing, I guess, like order sets or guidelines that have, you know, helped clinical pathways basically, um, that can assist. So when I, I just for my own knowledge, um, you know, locally on our adult side, we do have a more well-established stewardship program, um, because funding is obviously at larger hospitals, um, uh, more patients. And so funding is kind of, Uh, shifted there in our pediatric side, you know, there's a couple of things lacking. Um, We are just kind of moving into more of a a proper EMR system. So we don't actually have a lot of um, order sets to begin with. Um, And so kind of even implementing clinical pathways in your guys' experience to get approved, like those, the, get them hospital approved or authority approved. Um, once you have an established ASB program, is it much easier? Do you feel to kind of be able to, I guess, have more clinical pathways introduced at a quicker pace than because there's times, you know, when I've had to, so we have more than just, um, I guess, um, certain infectious diseases, but a lot of congenital infections, you know, some things that could be more protocolized and things like that. Um, so just my experience with that, it's been a little bit tough to release some of these clinical pathways. So do you think that comes along with, you know, having the funding for a stewardship program? Is it much easier? think the time commitment certainly helps i mean you know Mm. at least before there was physician support in our institution you know you're sort of asking one of the id physicians to kind of you know for a little bit more altruistic behavior you know it's sort of on their own personal time they didn't have dedicated time so um at least you know those guidelines are probably still getting formed um from what i can tell but they weren't having input from people that were the most knowledgeable about the antibiotics, which includes a pharmacist and a, an ID physician. So I think that was the thing that at least in our institution was lacking before there was that dedicated time um, for both the pharmacist and physician. Yeah, I think when it comes to the, I think from an approval process, um, you still have to have the stakeholders and all the buy-in. And so whether that having a formal stewardship program kind of allows that to be easier and they know that this is what it's coming from. But, you, you know, like for pneumonia, you're still going to need pulmonology to have some way the hospitalist, you know, right. are going to have to have some way in this because they're going to be the ones really um, executing the actual guideline and, and wanting to and follow what you're right. saying should be the appropriate piece. Um, I, I think one of the biggest challenges we have Mm-hmm. Um, is that we can develop these guidelines. The problem is, 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 is version control. Mm-hmm. Um, and then where do they all land? And so 
right? Like you can have neonatology. They might already have some guidelines on neck and early onset sepsis and HSV and all kinds of stuff. And you might not even realize it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then over time, you might've actually developed a couple and forgot about them. And then you get a new colleague that comes in trying to make things better. Not that this has ever happened, by the way. (laughs) Um, And and then they're like, oh, what about this? I'm like, oh yeah, totally forgot about that. Right. Because we get, we get really good about developing a guideline and then like, okay, we're good. We got it. Here you go. And then we forget that a guideline is only a, a guideline. Once you, once you get in the guideline business, you need to be in the business for good, which means updating it, reviewing it, making sure people can see it, make, you know, like, and that is, yeah. that is so much, that's so hard. I, I just to say that is a real hard side of it, but is a necessary, is a necessary side to keep a guideline relevant. No, that's fair. That's a really good point. I think, um, you know, definitely over the years and, and things change, right? So there's obviously a management, you know, more research comes out. And, and so definitely remembering that yeah. if you have the guideline and also not having to reinvent the wheel, right? Yeah. So important to, and this goes back to, I think what we we're talking about today is collaboration, right? So yeah. reach out to your colleagues, reach out to to areas where, where, um, you know, they may already have something in the unit that's functioning and, and you can just modify. So, yeah, I'd say, we know, one of the biggest opportunities we have in antibiotic use, right. Is, is limiting durations. And those studies are just coming out, right. Pneumonia, right. right? Like uh, our national guideline or national. So in the U S right. The IDSA guideline for Mm -hmm. pediatrics still says 10 days. And it actually flat out says expert opinion based. But there's been papers, Dr. Rebecca Same, who now I get to work with, who is at Hopkins, showed that five days is fine. The adults have been doing five days for inpatient pneumonia for ages. Right. Um, right? Like you, we need to be updating that. Um, yeah. And we need to get ourselves to those sorts of durations. And that's, that's why I think that update is so key, because there's so much opportunity from a stewardship perspective to limit durations that we haven't done yet. Yeah. And that's a really key point. I mean, to be honest, there's a lot of variance within even different ID specialists. Oh yeah. So we might be the worst offenders. Yeah. I mean, I, I, all right. So here's it. Like, so one of my, we had a fellow, um, Jason, like fabulous, a P's ID person. Michelle, do you know Jason? I don't think so. Okay. So Jason, like he, he went off to Utah and, um, he did a survey and we, we surveyed people on the emerging infection network and we, we divided, and it was just ID people, mm-hmm. and um, and it was and it was mainly just physicians because the EIN doesn't have as many pharmacists, which I would wish we had pharmacists in this. But essentially, we divided the group into whether you do stewardship or you don't do stewardship. They self-selected, and then we one of the questions we asked was, should you steward your ID colleagues? <laughs> oh yeah, right. That's an elephant in the room. Like everyone on this call should be like, oh, Jason, that's really fascinating. And I I mean, I have this strong belief that we should be stewarding each other. Like when you're on service, you should actually have someone kind of saying, are you sure you really need that mural penum? Do you think you need that for culture negative sepsis? And interestingly, we, even in the stewardship group, Mm -hmm. it was like 45% said we should steward each other. Mm. Like uh, most of us won't steward our our own colleagues because we're worried about what that's going to happen. But I, but I think as a, and I'm going to use this as a platform to say, look, if we're going to do this and expect our ICU colleagues to stop antibiotics for tracheitis, well, then we should, they should have the, also know that, well, the only reason they're using it is because your colleagues recommended it. Like we got to be able to do it with each other. 
Right. Um, and if we're really going to push forward, but I think it's an elephant in the room that we, I mean, oh, I yeah. don't give, right. Like, Oh I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. I know. Definitely. I we know who we work with. Sometimes you're like, really, I got to talk to that person. <laughs> but I, I think it's how we have to move forward. Sorry, it, it's I, all about those communication psychologies. You know, yeah, that's right. Back to that. So, yeah. Sorry. I had to jump on that soapbox for a second. Sorry, Rufina. No, I think, you know, it's a great point that you bring that up because there's times even in our center when, you know, if I'm, I'm on call and I, I do get a call from my ASP colleague and I actually appreciate it. I'm not actually against it because sometimes you do get a bit of tunnel vision once you're, you know, been following somebody, especially if you're on service for a few days or two weeks at a time, you know, occasionally we'll have like this kind of two week run. And, and there's times when, you're, you're just kind of, you know, doing the day to day and nobody, you didn't have the time yep. to, you know, step back. Well, and I think that's the bedside too, right. When you're caring for the yeah. patient, the fear factor is, is different. You know, objectivity <laughs> can leave the room sometimes, you know, like you just got to be willing to be questioned. I think that's part right, of it. right. You have to be willing to be questioned. That's how you make medicine better. And you don't have to agree. Like we know that, but have right. the conversation and then right. that's the key. And I feel like we're just too into, I'm not allowed to question my colleague because then they're going to be mad at me and then they're not going to support me. Well, we got to get over that. I mean, I think that's, and I think, I think stewardship programs will be better off if we're willing to steward each other, um, the, each other being ID people. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, there should be no different, right? Like we are no just like the rest of our colleagues. So, and sometimes like, and what Michelle was saying right now is like, you're at bedside. And, and there are times when, you know, if, if you have somebody kind of questioning your antibiotic approach, but you've kind of thought about the process and just explaining that, I think sometimes just going through the thought process with, with another colleague, an ID colleague, is yeah. just what you need. Right. Yep. And so, and it shouldn't be that, you know, we shouldn't, and again, we should always remember and for our listeners as well, is that ASP is not designed to say that you're doing something wrong. It's actually designed to look at what we're doing and if it's the best thing that we're doing at that time. And, and maybe it's different in every scenario, right? That's why it's not a blanket kind of approach. You have to have a case-by-case approach. And, yeah. and, and I think just highlighting that point is really important today. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Perfect. So we have a few more minutes and I want to talk a little bit about what does the future hold? So, you know, there, is there a lot of ongoing research in ASP? Is there other models that are, you know, and, and are there older models that, you know, how, how you mentioned, Jason, like we're bringing in some, you know, different types of approaches and, and what is the research like saying right now? Are there newer technologies for us physicians to kind of use in ASP? Um, I, I think the future holds, um, I, I, so I think technology will always be um, looked at um, in regards to, can we automate things? Can we use guidelines a bit better? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think that some of the big stuff is implementation science. Um, mm-hmm. What are the implementation strategies that seem to be most effective at different phases of stewardship or different um, issues you're trying to address? Like, for example, we're trying to address post-op antibiotic prescribing um, and trying to eliminate unnecessary antibiotics there. So we're utilizing facilitation training versus just changing your order sets or, you know, or using facilitation to get order set changed. I mean, these sorts of things I think are the future. I also think the future is value. I mean, if people in stewardship should, we should all be thinking about how we're going to demonstrate our value. We talk about it all the time. 
Um, we got it. We have to try to, you know, hone that in as best we can, because that's going to sustain our programs. I mean, I think about you, Rapina, and you're in where you are, like, you need to have someone that's saying to your hospital administrators and everyone to say, look, this is the value in, in the Canadian system. Right. This is why this is important. This is why you, we need to have a pharmacist to be a part of that. And, and, and stewardship is not, I mean, I'd say we're in our toddlerhood, right? Like if you look back, I mean, mm-hmm. people were doing some sort of stewardship in the eighties and some would say in the seventies when they had some initial antibiotics. So we're, but we're, but I feel like we're beyond, we need to be starting to really push things forward. And that also means metrics, metrics have to improve. Right. Um, I mean, days of therapy is fine, whatever. Um, but it's not like a central line infection where you're trying to go to zero. You're not trying to go to zero antibiotics. You're trying to go to zero inappropriate use. Mm-hmm. But we don't have a good way of de- determining that. And mind you, we tried and it was painstaking to quarterly review every patient in your hospital to see how, what percentage of inappropriate use was. Oh my gosh, that's hours and hours of work that seemed like, I'm not even sure it was the best use of our time. Right. So to me, I guess in summary, then is future is best implementation strategy, um, value, Mm -hmm. Um, and then better metrics. And one of those metrics needs to be a quick and easy ability to assess your hospital or your outpatient appropriateness. Right. That's fair. I think there are some cool diagnostics that are going to come our way too. that, you know, like I think over time, um, you know, rapid direct identification through PCR, next gen sequencing through sterilized fluid is going to become yeah. a little more like accessible and mainstream, but the trick is we're going to have to be able to figure out how to utilize it. Right. Cause like everything else, we, we're going to get, some of it's going to be information that we have to cut through the noise and, and find the signal. So, um, so I don't know. We're, it's I'm, I'm, busy. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Cause the other thing I should have said, and, and people should yell at me for not saying this earlier is the fact diagnostic stewardship is definitely yeah. an impactful thing. I think if you look at the work that done out of Hopkins with, um, with boy, Charlie Woods Hill, her paper on re- eliminating unnecessary blood cultures that was just published recently mm-hmm. is fantastic. Um, the same Hopkins group now under the leadership of Anna Six Samuels is, is doing some on respiratory cultures in the ICU about, you know, not dealing so many respiratory cultures, these sort of diagnostic stewardship on the side of let's not do all this testing that leads to a lot of unnecessary use. Cause yeah. The results don't make any sense. Um, I think as a, is a definitely future focus for many people that it's going to impact stu- antibiotic use tremendously. And it has, has been shown to. And regarding no, value too, I mean, all of that leads to waste, right? So I think the waste factor is going to increasingly be looked at, you know, what, what is the hospital having to yeah. dispose of? What's the environmental effects of all of that and all the all the diagnostic tools, like the actual, like physical, um, you know, material that we're using and having to dispose of from doing all of these tests and, you know, disposing of all these antibiotics. I, I think that's going to be looked at a lot more too. Yeah. That's a great point, Michelle, right? Like we heard, uh, Preeti Jaggy from, yep. uh, from Emory down at Children's Hospital of Atlanta, talk about all her work around, and she's big into climate change and sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some amazing work about just dose waste dosage, right? Mm-hmm. Like not using this. And, and I think we think of it on a sense of, oh my gosh, we've charged people this. No, no, no. I mean, this has impact because now that's going to impact because that's waste. 
instead of it being used, now you just had something you never used and you've added to waste that's unnecessary. And I mean, it, it, it has a larger impact than just our patients. I think if we, if you think beyond, and I, I think that's what Preeti has shown us a lot with some of her conversations. She'd be a good conversation for a podcast. I'm just oh, saying, yeah. Regina, yeah, that would great. be a good that's one. Good. That's what we like. We like when people recommend others. Um, She'd be fantastic. Yeah. Trust me. Nice. No, I, I would definitely reach out to her. So I think that's, you know, looking at the approach and having so many different angles, you know, for an ASP or just in general in medicine, I think things have changed. You know, we have to look at it that way. We have to look at kind of what, what are we doing initially? What are the investigations comes back to like choosing wisely. Right. So, um, there's a lot of initiatives around that as well. And I think overall, um, you know, huge impacts on costs, like we've known for years, but also looking at on the environment, I think that's a, a key factor to, um, to know. So, that's great. I'm honestly so appreciative to have both of you on our podcast today. Um, it's been great um, just to have a nice conversation with some nice colleagues and um, just see from the expert side, you know, what are things that maybe we could change here? Um, we're always reaching out to our U.S. colleagues for, um, you know, it's kind of our, uh, it's almost foreshadowing for us. So it's nice. We're a little bit behind on certain things in Canada sometimes. And so it's nice to see what others are doing, um, but also nice to share kind of what we have done locally here. And, and, um, and I think everybody has a lot to learn in terms of stewardship. Um, and like you mentioned, we're kind of in that toddler herd uh, times of this. So, um, so what's one thing we have a few minutes, what's one kind of key point that or highlight that you would want to give us? Um, I think each of you like a tip or, Anything that you would think that would be a take-home message from a stewardship standpoint? Uh, communication and collaboration are essential. Awesome. Uh, I, I'd focus on that and things, things go well. Perfect. I say it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint, you know, like kind of like politics, right? Um, if you want to make culture change, you got to look at the long game. Yeah. Everything that Jason said about collaboration and communication, building relationships. That's great. Yeah. And I think the other key point is for smaller centers like us, I think starting, right. So having the initiative to start somewhere um, is where I would say is what I learned from this all, because obviously everybody's in a different stage. Everybody has different resources but really looking at what you can do for your center and, and having a starting point and then slowly kind of um, going from there, whether it's one unit that you start in um, and then go from there and make it a hospital wide approach. So, right. Just um, do something. Do something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate both of you being on the podcast and is there any kind of last words that anybody's itching to share with our audience? I love Canada and I'm glad we could do this together. And you guys are way, way far ahead, much further ahead than you than you might think, but because you guys have taught us a ton. So I appreciate us being able to continue to collaborate. That's great. Thanks so much. Thank you to Dr. Newland and Dr. Mitchell for joining us. Have a topic suggestion? Email us at the Canadian Breakpoint at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint. See you again soon at the Canadian Breakpoint.